In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I talk with Jeff Epstein of Ambassador about how he, as a non-technical founder, built and sold a multi-million dollar SaaS startup. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 453. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us. It's the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first one or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob, and today with Jeff Epstein, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. On this show, we talk about building startups in an organic, sustainable fashion that allows you to focus on your personal freedom, purpose, and relationships. We have different show formats, and this week I sit down with an accomplished, impressive founder named Jeff Epstein. I've known Jeff for around eight years and watched in awe as he built Ambassador, it's at getambassador.com, into a five to $10 million ARR SaaS company, and all the trials, the tribulations, the struggles of what he went through to get there, and he exited about seven or eight months ago. What I like about Jeff is that at heart, he's a bootstrapper. He bootstrapped Ambassador, which was at the time called Zafferl, for a year, and he had to pay a developer essentially out of his own pocket. And then he raised a very, very small round between 25 and 50K just to basically keep the product moving forward. He's a scrappy founder. He was doing sales calls constantly in the early days. Really a founder who was uh, ambitious. One of the interesting things we dig into today is how you know he has kind of with a bootstrapper mindset had to raise funding to keep the company growing. And we talk through his decision to do that. We also talk about the toll that the company took on him over the course of this time. He said he didn't sleep very well. He did feel stress. He put on a lot of weight. This company took a toll on him. And we kind of walk through any regrets he has. And it's really a fascinating story. The whole latter half of the interview focuses on the acquisition because I find that the level setting people's mindsets of what a real acquisition looks like, the fact that Instagram was supposedly sold in a weekend for a billion dollars is kind of like, A, we don't even know if that's really true or if that's just kind of the myth and the story around it. And B, even if it is true, that's like a once in a five-year thing, right? Or a once a year, once a decade, whatever. Very, very, very rare. The other thousands and thousands and thousands of companies and startups that are acquired happen much more like what you'll hear Jeff talk about today. And so again, latter half of the interview focuses on that. And then it's fun to talk through with Jeff to hear what he's been doing for the seven months since he was able to, to leave the company. I always enjoy sitting down, talking with Jeff, really enjoyed the conversation and digging into his, you know, his victories, his struggles, his failures and everything that, that came along with it. Oh, and one side note before we dig in, it was an absolute comedy of errors trying to get this recorded, so I'm actually impressed that we're even able to ship it. I was in a Starbucks, which I normally don't work from coffee shops. I especially don't record interviews from coffee shops, but due to extenuating circumstances, that's where I was. Fire alarm started going off an hour before the interview, then stopped, then went back on, then went off, then went back on. Eventually, I went out to get in my car and take off and fire trucks had blocked the driveway, so I literally could not leave. So I sat in my car, I hooked up my hotspot to my phone, and this entire interview was recorded using that with you know, a USB headset plugged into just a laptop sitting on the, on the passenger seat. So it was a, a funny moment. I couldn't cancel the interview because the episode wouldn't have gone live on time. 
but the show must go on. We ship every Tuesday morning. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jeff Epstein. Thanks so much for joining me on the show this week, Jeff. Yeah, great to be here, Rob. Thanks. Appreciate it. You know, we go way back. We were in a mastermind uh, with Ruben Gomez for a couple years, if I recall, back when I was doing Hit Tale, 2011, 2012 timeframe. Yeah, it was. It, it's, it seems like a long time ago, but it was. It was a lot of fun, and I know, at least for myself, it was. It was a really valuable time to to chat with folks, and also there wasn't a huge community, and we we're all kind of in in interesting areas where there weren't startup communities, and it was. It was really. It was really important back then, and and, and obviously still today. It's uh, cool that we remain friends for so long. I agree. Yep, and I see you at, a, at you know microconf every so often. You made it made it this year, and then it it is cool that we that we ran across each other. I remember you and I originally met. I came and spoke. I believe it was in Grand Rapids, and you live in Detroit. And Ruben was in Florida, and I was in Fresno, California. So we were all in these these places where there wasn't a huge startup community around us. And so we kind of found each other through these channels. So today I, I kind of want to walk people through your story because it, it as I was saying, you know, right before I hit record your story of, of growing ambassador as a non-technical founder is, is so compelling. It almost writes itself. We just cover the points and it's like, Oh man, that was amazing. Oh man, that was brutal. How did you get over that? You know, that these are the best kinds of stories where there's a lot of um, adversity and there's a lot of struggle. And there was probably it was probably pretty painful at the time. You know, the different different things that happened with co-founders and whatever fundraising and you know working twenty four seven for for a few years. But I do think that folks are in for a for a pretty good ride today. So thanks again for sharing your story. Yeah, my pleasure. No, I'm excited to tell it. It is interesting, and there's certainly a bunch of highs and lows. So I think hopefully can help some people avoid some of the some of the stresses and struggles that I had, but definitely interesting for sure. And so to, to summarize, so we don't have to spend 10 minutes going through details, you started Ambassador in 2010, you exited, you sold the company in 2018 to a company called West Corporation. Ambassador was originally called Zeferal. And you did raise a few rounds of funding, and I, I believe, so you kind of started working on Zeferal slash Ambassador in 2010, and you raised a small angel round between 25 and 50K in 2011, and you had basically, you'd been self-funding it since then, right? So, you know, you mentioned to me that, like, your wife was was making money, and you were kind of pumping the money out the back door into the app. What was the impetus to raise the angel round? Because I, I think of you more as a bootstrapper. You know, you, you just have that capital efficient, you're not the Silicon Valley, go big or go home, billion dollar valuation. You're ambitious, but you don't fit that, the mold of like, I'm going to topple Salesforce and become the next Dropbox and, and Facebook and, and Airbnb. So what was the impetus for taking outside money in, in 2011? Yeah, and it's a good question. And, and for me, it was, it was really, and this sounds kind of bad, but it was almost like desperation mode. It, it didn't act like that, I don't think at the time, but for me, I, I had done pretty well, I guess, for being an adult without having like an actual job. I was investing in real estate. I was doing some odd things. I'd just come out of law school and I'd sold like a small business that helped me pay off my loans, but I didn't have that much money saved up or capital. And again, it was coming off of like the 2008 financial situation. So there weren't a lot of jobs. So I basically self-funded uh, Zferl and it was like maybe like four or $5,000 a month, right? And to, to pay for developers to build the product. And a couple of things I think led to me raising money. One was there wasn't this sort of playbook that exists today in terms of like how to bootstrap even, right? Like bootstrapping to me at the time was just like just grinding it out and, and, and getting money wherever you could. 
and I kind of exhausted all avenues. And the problem for me, and, I, and, and Rob, I mentioned this earlier to you, was I couldn't stay up late and like get the app done, right? Like I wasn't able to just do the work because I couldn't write code. So I had to basically pay for it. So at the end of the day, like I had an opportunity to raise, I think it was 25K and I took it because it was, you know, I had just gotten married, I got married in 2010. So right before this money came in 2011, like I had to sort of think about my wife in terms of, hey, it's not just my money I'm risking now. It's like, it's ours, right? It's a partnership. And she was kind enough or, you know, she believed in me and allowed me to, to do it. But it was at a certain point, like literally like the money was coming in and it was going right out. Like she wasn't making even maybe me even more than what I was paying out. So like our household was like a net deficit, which is pretty tough to do when you're just getting married and just bought a house. And, you know, I don't know if that's what she, she used to always joke. I thought I was marrying an attorney and like, that's not, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. And she was a good sport and she's joking about it, but you know, I, I don't know if she knew that that was what she was getting into. And so that it was a big relief at the time. And 25 grand was probably like six months of expenses. I mean, I, I could, I was fine not getting paid, but money going out was, was tough when I wasn't making anything. And at that point you had maybe a couple grand in MRR, you think? And right. Then the other thing is we, at that point, like we probably just started getting customers. So it wasn't enough to, it wasn't, be, I don't think the customers could fund the, the development of the, and, and, you know, sustain the business. So I think as, as that started happening again, I, I probably didn't take a salary for until maybe after Techstars or around Techstars, uh, which was like 2012. But Again, just not losing money. I remember that was a big turning point in our in my family. It was like, all right, we're not losing money anymore. <laughs> like we're just just not making any money, but we're not losing money. That was pretty big. Getting back to break even, it's tough, man. It's tough in an early, I won't say new relationship because you guys had known each other, but a new marriage and and trying to scramble and, and bootstrap a, you know, or start a start a startup like that. Do you have any regrets around that? Either raising the money initially or not learning to code at some point, anything you would do differently? Or do you feel like, no, you came to play, you showed up and, and you made it happen? I, I don't have any regrets about it. I do think it would have been smart for me to learn how to code. I think that would have saved a ton of stress and heartache. And as you know, I'm like willing to do the work. So being able to do the work would have been hugely valuable for me <laughs> instead of having to rely on somebody else. And even just being like kind of a control freak, which I think a lot of founders are, like it would have been better if I could do it myself. But that being said, I think the, the the value and the what I was so lucky was that, you know, my wife was like supportive and understanding about it. So as hard as it should have been, it wasn't nearly as hard as it probably sounds. Uh, but overall, I think I, I felt, I, you know, no regrets. And that, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, you look back today and you've had this successful exit and, and so everything, everything worked out, but at the time when you're grinding it out for a year and you're at one or two K MRR, you've just started taking customers and you've spent tens of thousands of dollars. I'll, I'll assume it's hard. That's not an easy, that's not an easy place to be in. I can imagine. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it was super tough, you know, and I think it was a perfect storm of being naive and, and young enough where, you know, I think like it would be a lot harder for me to do that where I am in my life today in terms of just like age and, you know, expectations. And for whatever reason, it, I think, you know, fortunately for me, I was like willing to to do it. And it is hard, right? And I think looking back, you're like, wow, I can't believe I, I, we did that. But you also don't know any better, right? I mean, that's part of the beauty of it. And, you know, I know you're under NDA for the acquisition terms, but I'll ask you, I'll ask it in a more vague way that I feel like people have asked me, you know, on the record about the, the drip acquisition as well. You know, you sold the company last year. Did you make enough money that you don't have to work again if you don't want to? Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, you know, we definitely can, can live a comfortable life. 
based on, on how things went, uh, I think we can we could survive pretty and, and, and be pretty well well off. The reality is we both want to continue working and, and my goal is really just to focus on things that I'm passionate about and, and just have like have a more fun, you know, I guess that's going to be a big, you know, that's a big change going forward and has been already. That makes a lot of sense. I've done the same thing. I think the passion is like tiny seeds, what I'm excited about. And it's nice to have the luxury of basically not getting a paycheck for a year or two or, or three or five, you know, Einar and I got our first, first paycheck from tiny seed last month. And it was like, yay. But like, I couldn't have done that 10 years ago, right? You can't just not take a check for, for a long time. So it is nice to have the luxury and knowing you, I mean, I know how much of a hustler you are. And just when you find that next thing, while I hope you don't go as all in as you did <laughs> on ambassador, cause you're right. And I, you know, I kind of walked through a, a year or two of it with you and I saw the toll, you know, it was taken on you. I do think that you'll find that spark again and you will, you know, you'll, you'll go mostly in on, on something that you'll, you'll be working on. Yeah. It's funny you say that. It's something that I've even talked to my wife about is that I'm concerned that I won't be able to do 80% or whatever the number is, right? That's like a healthy amount of all in this, I guess, right? Because I, I am, I always tell people like I'm an all or nothing kind of guy. Like I'm, you know, I'm not good at, oh yeah, I'll just work f- X hours a week, right? Like even if I just, even if it's 20 or 40 or whatever it's supposed to be or 60, like if I say it's that, it's like I'm not realistically going to stop unless I feel like I did everything I could. And that's, you know, just, it gets harder kind of, and I think, and you just get worn down. And, and for me, you know, it, it definitely, that happened. And I'm getting close to 40 years old. So it's kind of like, all right, I need to start like reevaluating my, my life and looking at it a little bit differently than feeling like you're a college kid, which is kind of what I felt like for the last 10 years, probably, you know. Seems like one of your goals with the next one should be to, to control your work, you know, to work 35 hour weeks or 40 or some, you know, reasonable, reasonable amount. So to come back, just to kind of wrap up the intro story so that we can dig into some, some of the points, you mentioned you went through Techstars uh, in Austin. That was mid-2011. That was back when Techstars wrote really small checks. So it was like an $18,000. It wasn't even a round, right? It was just a stipend. And then I think the next year, they they started giving $100,000 notes, which probably kind of sucked for you to not get that. I'm imagining you could have used that money at the time. Definitely. Yeah. And we were in New York, so it was even more expensive to live. But yeah, it was uh, during the cl- during the class, they announced the 100K note. And it was super big bummer for us because we were one of the few B2B companies. And at the time, 2011, that also meant we were like completely unattractive to investors, especially in New York. So we had a really hard time raising money while all of our cohort, basically all the B2C apps, all the mobile apps, they like easily raise money. I mean, I don't think any of them are around now, but they had a much, much, much easier time raising money than we did. It was really tough. And then you raised a couple hundred grand in a note in 2012, and then you did raise a Series A in 2015. So total over the course of several years, that's almost five years, you, you brought to about 2.75 million. And I know, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, you needed that early money to fund development, right? Because you couldn't write the code itself. In 2015, when you raised two and a half million dollars, 2.4 million dollars, what was the the thought there? Was it that you'd hit product market fit, you're growing super fast, and you need money for for bodies? Talk me through the the logic. Yeah, and it's it's funny, like thinking about this, and someone asked me the other day, and and thinking about my thought process, I don't know if it was it wasn't so I didn't run a process, which is a little bit different than most people. It was it was an opportunistic fundraise. And I had sort of, and, and Rob, you probably know this personally, at the time 
fundraising wasn't on my radar. We were like mildly cash flow positive. I would say like five figures, right? Cash flow positive. So it was enough. And, and maybe the team was 10 or 11 people. So there were, there were certainly people there. It was kind of a ragtag group of folks, I would say. Like most of the people weren't experienced startup or tech people, right? It was like you were hiring people that would be willing to work with you, even though you could offer them almost nothing in terms of, you know, in terms of benefits or comp. So that's always tough. And I think one of the reasons why we raised money was I really wanted to, and, and one of the goals that I had before I even started Ambassador was I wanted to help you know, build the community in, in Michigan. And, and I wanted to create an environment where these companies kind of survived and thrived and where people wanted to go to work every day. And that was kind of what I wanted to build. And I realized that incrementally adding one person at a time and being really, really lean. I mean, I was super lean. I was paying myself $40,000 a year. I mean, we were living, you know, our office was all Ikea furniture. It was just really hard to create that environment with like such a, like a lack of resources. And so when Arthur Ventures came along and kind of pitched me on a partnership where they said, we're not going to make you kind of step out of your comfort zone and try to grow at all costs. Like we do, we do respect the way that you built the company and that you kind of, I think the director said like, you wouldn't die. You know, he's like, you should have died, but you didn't because you were willing to just fight. So I just saw this alignment there and I said, you know what, this could be really good. And then we can, you know, we had great people and we got lucky that the people that we hired early were all ended up being amazing and grew into uh, amazing pieces and, and teammates. Uh, and many of them were awesome to begin with, but being able to spend ahead of where we were, it was a big accelerant for us and that we needed. And it allowed us again to like give people benefits and to like up comp and like do some of the things that I wanted to do. There was no money to be had before that. So it was really, that was kind of why, why I raised money. It sounds like you found money on terms that made a lot of sense for you to raise and didn't come perhaps with a lot of the strings attached that that maybe a lot of the, the Silicon Valley money would come with. Whether it still does today is even, I mean, it's it's still evolving. It's becoming more founder-friendly. But I mean, is that accurate? It's like you, you found someone willing to give you a couple million bucks in a way that that made sense for how you wanted to go to the company and didn't negatively impact your optionality down the line. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I have a ton of respect for Arthur Ventures and Pat. I mean, they were awesome. And it was, I think it was a really great fit. And, and listen, I did we want to build a hundred million dollar company? Like the answer is yes. And I think they wanted us to. And, and the expectation was we were going to try our hardest to, to do that. But what I always said to him is I don't want to leverage the business to be successful. Like I don't want to get to a hundred million or die. And I think that's something that many VCs, if they hear that answer, they'd be like, this isn't the person for me, which is fair. And I think in some cases, like they want you to take that swing. And if you miss they're okay with it and they can go to bed at night. Like I didn't want to sleep at night and saying like everyone could have had a really great career and a really great experience, but I was like selfishly went for it and we all went home and that was it. So I think there was an agreement there. I mean, I think like I know for a fact, we weren't the best outcome for, for Arthur's. I, I definitely do feel bad about that. And I know that I tried my best and to be both smart enough and I think calculated to maximize the, the outcome without, without killing the business. And we got, you know, we got pretty low, to be honest, we got pretty low in cash multiple times, way lower than we agreed to get because we were trying, we were trying everything we could to kind of continue to grow as fast as possible to get to the next stage. So 
but yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely like founder investor fit for sure. I mean, I have nothing but great things to say about Arthur and Pat and he was awesome. And, um, so when, 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 you know, when they offered, we, you know, we negotiated a little bit and then that was, you know, what we did. Yeah, that makes, it makes a lot of sense. And, and something I think that I want to dig into is the fact that you said, you know, you, you got pretty low on cash multiple times. You and I both mentioned that you were kind of all in and you were basically working 24 seven for several years. This all sounds like not fun, right? That sounds very stressful. Was it that in the moment? Like when you were doing it, were you thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, this is brutal? Or are you the type of person I would have been stressed. Let me put it that way. There are people who just absorb that and they just don't feel the stress about this stuff. So talk me through, I mean, it's an eight year period, so it's hard to nail anything, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, were there moments when you were like, I don't think I can keep doing this. Like I'm going to explode. To be honest, not really. I think I, I like stress. I mean, I like stress for the most part. And I, and I used to always tell people and that maybe this is bad advice, but I would say like, if you care about something, you'll be like, there'll be a level of stress, you know, like, I'm like, to me, that shows that you care. So I, I think there was looking back more stress than, the, than, than I would have liked. But I'm also the kind of person who like loves to dive in and like kind of obsess over something. And, and when it doesn't go exactly as you want, then it becomes what I would consider to be stress. And so whether that's at one point in my life, it was playing poker or another th- you know, time in my life, it was learning to play sports or whatever. Like those things were super, I, I think at a certain point, like stressful to me, but in like a way that I didn't, it didn't bother me that much. To me, it manifested in things like gaining a lot of weight and like not just being exhausted and not like working out or not being able to sleep things that like I reasonably should have been able to do, but I just couldn't focus or prioritize for those things because I was so concerned about doing everything I could for the business. So there were very few times where I was like, oh my God, I need a vacation. Like I, I always thought like, man, I'm, I'm really stressed, but I mean, day to day, I really enjoyed it. And especially like post series A, like when we had a little bit of money in the bank and I was surrounded by more people that were, that felt like peers and some of the early employees became like good friends. So it's not, it's not that, but people that kind of had experience. Because I think for a long time, I felt like I was doing everything myself. Of course, my CTO and co-founder Chase, I mean, he was an amazing help. Uh, but when we added a couple more folks, and it kind of we had like a leadership team, so to speak, that took a lot of burden off of me. Uh, the problems became different problems. And it was, it was probably more stress. It, it never got less stressful. But I think it became a little bit more fun for me and allowed me to keep keep going despite some of those, you know, those other, you know, challenges. And Early on, you had, I know you applied to Techstars one year and you didn't have a co-founder, right? You kind of had a, an agency or it was an offshore developer and, and you got rejected. And one of the things they said is, well, you know, we, we don't really want a non-technical single founder type thing. And so you came back the next year and you applied with a technical co-founder, but he was almost like employee number one. Is that right? Yeah. So the next year I had applied to Techstars and I had done some networking in between the two applications. So I had a reasonable feeling that I might be able to get in the next time in New York. And I had known some people that were in the prior class and they were like, you need to, you know, have a technical person like show up with you. So I hired somebody who, you know, again, technically we called him a co-founder and certainly deserves that title, but he was basically hired a couple months before Techstars New York to just basically help rewrite the code base from the original Z401, which which was what I applied with, into into Ambassador, which we ended up kind of leaving with, so to speak. So we had rewritten the code base. And that was your first rewrite of the code base? Because d- didn't you rewrite it again, like in 2012, 2013? 
Yeah, we we rewrote it again, and then um, soon after, when Chase the Chase joined and, and is still obviously is still part of the team, and, and actually have you know on to, to bigger and better things at at West now. One of his first projects was really to undertake start migrating the code base to something a bit more you know more scalable and and in a more modern technology. So we were previously PHP, and then he was you know we moved it over to Python and Angular, which became React eventually. So it was a big undertaking. We probably started that 2013, it may have taken a year or so, but we did it kind of in a compartmentalized way that we hope we didn't really slow down the, the site too much, but it was a it was a lot of extra work probably to do it that way. Yeah. And the reason that, you know, you wound up leaving the mastermind is you, Ruben and I were like, I was, I had hit tail and maybe was just starting drip, no employees, you know, and, and Ruben had two contractors or three of, I don't know, two employees. And you were hiring like your 20th employee. You were like putting out cult, you know, culture and vision documents and trying to get everybody on the same page. And we're like, look, we like each other. We're all ambitious, but you're, you're just at a different place. You know, that's, that's what wound up happening. But during that time, I remember, that rewrite was not super fun that it impacted. I mean, you just had a team of developers kind of trying to rewrite it. And then you had folks trying to add more features and you were like basically building the parachute as you, after you jumped out of the plane, I don't know what there is to say about that, but like, was it, do you remember that as being super painful? Cause that was my memory of it. Or do you remember it as no, we handled it and we got it done. I guess the fact that you, you rewrote it twice was the real the real brutal thing. And I remember when we talked about it, I was like, gosh, do not rewrite this code base. You know, as it coming from a developer, like my whole perspective is like, yeah, whenever I come into a new code base, I'm always like, oh, this is a whole piece of crap. I'm going to rewrite this whole thing. And then I eventually resist the urge, you know, and I push the business forward instead. But you made a very, very hard decision to do that. Yeah, it's funny you say that. And I remember even when Chase joined, we, we kind of when we, he was thinking about joining and he had done some diligence and we kind of agreed like, Hey, let's not, let's not rewrite it. Because I think even you said like the first thing he's going to want to do is rewrite it. And so one of the things we talked about was, okay, let's like, let's try to keep it as is and we'll, we'll go with PHP. And I remember we hired, we had a PHP dev and we hired someone else who was competent in PHP, but also, you know, knew Django and, and Python as well. And after a couple of months, he's like, dude, we got to rewrite this. Like, I'm sorry. You know, it's just, there's too many, there's too many issues with it. And, and like you said, it was, it was like building the parachute on the way down, or he used to say it was like changing the tires on the highway while you're going, you know, 70 miles an hour. And, you know, at that time we had $20,000 a month and in, in maybe in customers. So, you know, maybe 250 K ARR maybe. And, you know, those people don't care if you're rewriting, right? Like your customers don't care if you're rewriting it until it's done. And at the time, I think we had, we might've had even T-Mobile where we just were getting a customer like T-Mobile. So it was super stressful. And then, you know, knowing that you're building something that's going to get ripped out eventually was, it, it was way more stressful for them than it was for me. I mean, I think, you know, as you know, like anything technical always takes a lot longer than you, than you hope. Uh, and I think that probably happened, but what I think went well, and I think what I learned from Chase and I knew even then was he was he was super money when he you know when he when he recommended we do something like it it always seemed like it was the right move and so you know it was one of those things where he he was like we have to do it and I was like okay let's do it I mean it wasn't my it wasn't what I wanted to do because obviously it doesn't feel like you're moving forward you know and and, and listen I think we we were rewriting it when this year too we rewrote a lot of the front end we rewrote some of the back end in terms of just scalability I mean going from a few hundred thousand or a few thousand people on your site to millions of people on your site. I mean, the, the growth in terms of requests was, it was insane. So like they were like 10 xing the site like every year, just, just to maintain it. It was, it was pretty insane. 
Yeah, I've been part of one of those. Insane is is the right way to, is the right way to describe it. And so you grew it. I remember in the early days you had a lot of focus on sales, and you were good at doing. You were doing a lot of one on one demos, and that's how you landed, or one of the ways you landed customers like T Mobile and these big enterprise deals. And I was like super super impressed with that. At a certain point, you and I kind of lost touch for a year or two, and we were off doing. You know, I was doing drip, and you were really digging into uh, into growing ambassador when you sold the company in 2018, what, how big were you guys? And I guess, you know, I don't think you've been public with revenue, so I won't ask that, but employee count or some other indication? So I can, I'll tell you a couple of things. So we were, we were between five and 10 million in revenue and about 40 some odd employees, give or take. What was the the acquisition process like? I mean, were you getting approached by people who wanted to buy you? Did you have to go out looking for interest? How long did it take? I mean, just you know, talk me through. I mean, there are folks listening to this who we don't get to hear a lot of of inside stories about these because there's a lot of them are so opaque and it's a TechCrunch post of X company sold for Y million dollars. Wow, isn't that great? And you feel like it happened in three days. The drip acquisition from first email to close was 13 months, and six of that was me working 20 hours a week on it. You know, I mean, it was like incredibly stressful for me. So I loved it. Kind of just if you can walk me through bits of it, you know, so people can hear what it's like on the inside of something like this. Sure, and it 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 was definitely intense, and it was probably close to like you said about it was probably a year of planning total at least. And so for me, because we were funded, because we had a board the first part of the process really came about through, you know, board discussions of, again, when you have a board, you always have to look, you know, multiple years out. And, you know, one of the things that we were doing was trying to figure out where, you know, how can we get to where we want to be and what are the strategic options? And that includes, you know, either fundraising or potentially selling, right. Or, or buying somebody like the worst thing you can do once you raise money, you're on the clock. Right. So the worst thing you can do is kind of like grow slowly or kind of decelerate like, not to say that was happening, but I think it was a concern, you know, like money, like we, you know, we were kind of in the, in between kind of like a series B, it was possible we could raise a B and that was one option. And then all the factors you have to think about if you raise a B between dilution and, you know, lots of times people want new leadership teams. And, and, and so like that was one path potentially. And another path was, was of course selling another path was kind of staying the course, but having to figure out a way to to accelerate growth, you know, instead of, you know, instead of decelerating, which, which happens to most companies, right? You usually don't grow faster the year after. So we kind of came up with the idea that we'd kick the tires and see if we, if it made sense to explore a strategic partnership, which, which really usually means a sale, but it could have been different kinds of investments too. Like we were pretty open and, and we had also looked at other types of like alternative financing. So we were looking at all, all options as I mentioned, like money was getting lower than we had planned you know, again, we were, you know, with 40, 50 people, we weren't burning a lot. And we weren't always, you know, some years we were cash flow positive, but the swings, you know, with 40 people, I mean, payroll, you know, is several hundred thousand dollars a month. So the swings are pretty big. So you need to, you know, have enough cash on hand and, and you know, again, relying on checks from companies and, and things like that. So that was kind of beginning of the process. Uh, we did end up hiring a banker, which is basically, it was much more work from from my perspective for me personally to, to get ready for this working with a banker than working for fundraising right so it was like putting a whole fundraising deck together but then including everything and and even things that you would normally maybe not tell like or you wouldn't want to advertise right like you need to be really open about and, and just get everything together so that you can share everything and that they know everything so that uh 
you know, things go correct, go well, and they give you kind of an accurate idea of, of the value of the business. So, so when working with a banker, one of the things is the process. And, and first, of course, they, they speak directly with the companies, the companies are interested, then they, they, they reach out to the, the team and they have what's called like management meetings. So we probably had a couple dozen management meetings, which are basically calls with the entire management team, kind of giving them an overview of the business. It's extremely stressful. It's also, you have to do them. And for us, we had to do them and like kind of keep them private, right? Like the idea that, you know, we were talking to potential acquirers couldn't be that obvious to the company, right? So it was, it's really stressful. And we did probably a dozen or more of those. And I mean, some companies were some of the biggest companies that everyone's heard of. And some of the companies, you know, some of them were known in companies and private equity companies and just ranged across the gamut. We did that for several months. And then eventually you get LOIs and IOIs and LOIs. And, you know, then eventually once the, once the LOI signed, then there's a lot of work to do. And you actually meet with all the folks and try to really talk about, you know, get down to brass tacks in terms of integration and, you know, real items. So it was incredibly stressful for me. I, you know, I played kind of the point person on most of the stuff. Uh, obviously the banker, a banker did a lot, but I did a lot. And it's a lot more stressful than I, than I anticipated. And it's a lot harder like a few times investors be like, why don't you just wait like two years and just do and like just sell? And I was like, man, it's like not as easy as it sounds, right? And like people always say that. But you're eight years in at this point. And it's like, this is eight years and it's been really hard, right? I mean, that I imagine you might have been feeling some burnout. You there's a there's a certain point where I feel like you start to hear that there's an opportunity to A, not have to continue doing what you're doing. And it's not, I don't get the feeling that you hated what you were doing. I think you were still into it. But at a certain point, you start to think about a next phase, as well as when is this going to pay off all this hard work? Like my whole life's work is, is and my net worth is tied up in this company. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things for me where I think I felt bad because I think truly my investors... Some of them, I think, would have been excited if we would have kept going. And, and listen, the business was in a good spot, right? It wasn't the best deal ever, right? Like, I think we did well, and I think generally everyone was pretty happy, but it also wasn't like a no-brainer. And I think, you know, you always hope for it's like a no-brainer and everyone's on the same page. And the reality is, like, investors are smart. Like, if something's going well or something's going good enough, like, they want to keep going. You know, like, they're, they're only making so many bets or investments per year. And if it's if it's working and there's a pretty clear path to the next milestone, like, they don't want to sell, which makes sense. And so the feedback was, you know, I get, we got mixed feedback. Like, lots of people were happy. Lots, and no one was mad, but people were like, hey, well, have you considered, like, continuing on and going? And like you said, Rob, I got to the point, I think, where it was so close you could kind of taste it and you see what you're like the outcome and, and, you know, a lot of us had worked hard for it and we knew, you know, they knew a year before that we were going to try to do this. So it was one of those conversations that I had with them was like, guys, I know we've been working hard. Like I need you to work twice as hard this year and hopefully it's going to pay off. And like, here's like all the incentives and reasons why, like you, you, we should do that. And, and I think everyone was pretty burnt. You know, I think we were fried as is, is what I was, you know, we used to say it's like, we were, we were totally fried. Like it was tough. And, and so from that perspective, it was really hard to just walk away. And so, you know, knowing that it was, you know, obviously makes it a little bit more stressful because I think at any point in my time in ambassador, I always felt like I had a lot of optionality where I didn't need a specific outcome. And, and this was one of the situations where I was like, all right, I think if we don't sell here, like we're going to have to start looking to replace people because I don't know if they're going to be able to handle it. And, and that's, not, that's me, my analysis of it. And of course, we never got to that point. And 
I'm really good friends with everybody. So I think if I, if I also would have said, I need you that, or we need you, they would have stayed. But I just felt like I would have been doing everyone a disservice by like pushing any, like we pushed really hard for a long time. So I know the deal closed October of 2018, last October. When did you tell your employees and how did they react? We told them the day that we signed the deal. So we had done all the diligence up until that point and had not told them. And, and the reason for it was based on everything that I heard was like, you, you really don't want to tell people. And with, I know with big companies, like with really big transactions or public companies, like as soon as the LOI is signed, like they, they tell the companies. For us, we, we had the LOI signed a lot earlier. It wasn't 100% that it was going to get done. I mean, that was, you know, just I think in bigger companies, there's a lot of like shareholder pressure and things like when you make the announcement, like kind of the expectation is you're going to close the deal. We had a lot of deal points that were not ironed out yet. And, and, and actually multiple times during that period, I kind of thought we might not close. And so we told the team, uh, I think early October, I would say 95% of the people were pumped, super pumped. Uh, a lot of them were way more pumped when they heard like what they would get out of it. You know, I'd like to say that I prided myself on really trying to build a great culture, especially over the last couple of years. You know, really, that was my main focus. And I think a few people were sad that that might you know, be happening. And I think the uncertainty with an acquisition is scary for a lot of people. We tried to be, we were super transparent and like we immediately had like a town hall and like Q&A and I think everyone felt good after, but there were some things that we couldn't control like right after closing that I think, you know, West didn't do very well at and that got everybody unsettled again. And, you know, again, luckily I think things went, went as smooth as they could have been behind the scenes. It was, a lot of scratching and clawing and, and, and tough conversations. And, and I'm, I'm really proud for the leadership team and uh, for what we did to kind of hopefully make things work out as well as they did. But I think I was pretty happy with how things turned out. Yeah. And I know you're someone who, you know, you, you take a lot of ownership, personal ownership over things, obviously over your company, but over the culture and I think over, you know, the well-being of your employees and such. So the deal closes, you're obviously relieved probably you know, pretty happy that it went through it's kind of a life-changing moment for you. But I know, you know, you, as you just mentioned, like over the, the next several weeks or whatever, month or two, West maybe fumbled the ball a, a little bit and you weren't in charge anymore, right? So these weren't things that you you could fix. How did that impact you? Was it really hard to see it? Was it something that you knew would iron itself out so it didn't stress you out that much? It was really hard, actually. And there were multiple times after the fact where I was like, I wish we wouldn't have done this, like wouldn't have sold. And a couple examples, one of which, a couple of deal points, I'll just say, weren't fully fleshed out because West Corporate like wasn't able to disclose the, the particulars because they were still kind of fluid. So we, we kind of agreed, okay, well, like we won't agree to this in terms of we won't, you know, specifically memorialize it in the agreement. And and that ended up being, a, I think, a big mistake for me. And, and I think the, the outcome of that was, I don't want to say anything harmful, but what we got in that particular kind of agreement was, I think, a lot worse than what we expected. And it was, again, to me, directly kind of affecting the people and culture. And, and it really was like a gut punch. I did a couple things that cemented my my place with, with Wes probably and wrote some really aggressive emails and took some pretty aggressive stands that I hope I think that paid off and kind of set the tone for my team. Luckily, I mean, you know, only a few people ever saw that or heard it, but I felt good that I took a stand. I felt like it was the right thing to do. And and, and luckily I know like the, the folks who were going to stay there 
after me. Like I needed them to see like we need we need to kind of stand up for the folks. And and and, and everyone was in, in agreement that we did. So yeah, it's that comes back to that ownership piece. I mean, that's what I was pointing out of your that's your personality, right? That's I, I figured you would do something like that. So you mentioned that that during that post acquisition, you were you know struggling with it, and that there were days where you regretted selling. So I never had a day. I mean, I guess I was lucky or whatever. I never woke up a single day after the drip acquisition and thought, I wish that we hadn't done that. Like it just it worked out. There were some hard days, but it never made me think, oh, you know, I, I would go back on this. So that that tells me a lot. That tells me that it was hard, you know, that it was really hard knowing you and knowing kind of your, your, your psyche and ability to take, take stress and deal with it. Since then though, cause you were, you were with West for about a month or two after the acquisition. So really first of the year, you know, you were able to, to move on. It's been seven ish months, seven and a half months. Have you had any regrets since that point about selling? No, definitely not. I mean, again, uh, a couple things have changed. Those I should add like the team, and and I, I would say has worked really well with West. And I think West and just recently has kind of put Ambassador in a position to be successful. And that took a lot longer, I think, than we hoped it would. But uh, even just as early as recent as like last week, I still talked to a bunch of folks there. Everyone's doing well. I, I actually played in the softball team yesterday, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, and everyone's really excited, and and which is which is really great. And that's what we wanted to do. And so West is, has really done a great job of you know, correcting course and working with Chase specifically, but other folks at Ambassador to try to continue to allow it to be, to flourish and be successful. And, and from all things that I've heard, things are going really well and people are happy. It's great to hear, man. And it's, it's easy to have no regrets when it did work out in the end for your team. It worked out, you know, financially for you. And, and I know, you know, several folks on your team and then obviously life is, is substantially better for you at this point. So I'm really, I'm happy to hear, like, I'm happy to hear that things are a lot better. I think that leads us kind of to our final, you know, our final question. Do you know what's next for yourself yet? Or is that just something that, that you'll wait and see? Because there's no rush. That's what I would tell you, Jeff, don't rush into the next thing. There is no need to rush into the next thing. Yeah, no, I know. And, and it's something that's funny. I've even told my wife, like, let's be super intentional about what we do going forward because we're fortunate enough to have like that flexibility. So I've tried to be really intentional. I've spent a good amount of time just advising and, and not like formally, but like, just like, you know, I wrote a couple blog posts and just said, Hey, if you're in the area or you want to chat, like I'm happy to talk. And, and you're a tiny seed mentor. Thanks for that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Hopefully I can even do more, but I'm excited to be on the Slack group and answer some questions and, and be available for when it's my turn to, uh, to chat with folks. And so I'm staying busy a little bit, looking to maybe do some, some lightweight consulting where I'm, I'm still keeping a lot of flexibility, but I'll be honest. I've, I've talked to a couple of business brokers and just kind of looked at what's available and tried to see what, what piques my interest. And I've floated out a couple offers for companies that were, you know, maybe not the best offer for the founder. So I, I, no one's accepted anything yet, but I'm, I'm kicking the tires on a few things. But as we talked about earlier, my, my biggest concern is, can, can I do it in a way that's, that, that's not all in, you know, and, and that allows me to be flexible. If I were to do something, I would, I would really focus on that kind of work-life integration or balance or whatever you want to call it, where it's much more flexible than the traditional company. But I think that's the future. Thanks again, man, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. 
absolutely. No, I, it was, it was great catching up again, Rob, and, uh, always good to chat. And if folks want to keep up with you online, where's the best place to do that? Uh, best place is probably Twitter. It's at Jeff underscore Epstein. I'm on Medium also, but Twitter, I'm pretty, pretty active. Uh, if you tweet at me or DM me or something, I'm, I'm sure to see it and I can follow up and, and chat from there. Sounds great. Thanks again, man. Of course. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. As you can tell, I've been changing up the format over the past four or five episodes. Mike is on a temporary hiatus and an update on him. He took some time completely off. He was on vacation and he's interested in coming on the show in the next few weeks to uh, talk about his thoughts and his progress. So we'll hear from Mike soon. In the meantime, if you have a question for me or one of my guest hosts, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email them to us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Thank you for listening. If you haven't left a five-star review, would really appreciate it. If you like the change up in the format and kind of the fresh, fresh voices, fresh perspective, even just the fresh show formats, I'd really appreciate if you could, you know, lend a five-star review, even tweet out particular episodes that you've been impacted by. It really does help to show me that that what I'm doing here matters. I'm spending a lot more time on the show. I'm dedicating time to trying to kind of raise the bar. And if it doesn't make a difference and you know, I don't, I don't hear anyone talking about it. I've heard two or three people compliment me on it. And that was super appreciated. But, you know, if it doesn't move the needle, then obviously, you know, I have to invest my time in places where, where it really moves them forward. So would appreciate hearing your thoughts, sentiments on the Twitters. You can email us directly, obviously, questions at startupswiththerestofits.com or five-star review always helps as well. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you next time.